Chapter 12 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 2, Cleric in Naples, Chapter 12. Bellino's History. I am put under arrest, I run away against my will, my return to Rimini, and my arrival in Bologna. Dear reader, I said enough at the end of the last chapter to make you guess what happened, but no language would be powerful enough to make you realize all the voluptuousness which that charming being had in store for me. She came close to me the moment I was in bed. Without uttering one word, our lips met and I found myself in the ecstasy of enjoyment before I had had time to seek for it. After so complete a victory, what would my eyes and my fingers have gained from investigations which could not give me more certainty than I had already obtained? I could not take my gaze off that beautiful face, which was all aflame with the ardor of love. After a moment of quiet rapture, a spark lighted up in our veins a fresh conflagration, which we drowned in a sea of new delights. Bellino felt bound to make me forget my sufferings, and to reward me by an ardor equal to the fire kindled by her charms. The happiness I gave her increased mine twofold, for it has always been my weakness to compose the four-fifths of my enjoyment from the sum total of the happiness which I gave the charming being from whom I derived it but such a feeling must necessarily cause hatred for old age, which can still receive pleasure, but can no longer give enjoyment to another. And youth runs away from old age, because it is its most cruel enemy. An interval of repose became necessary, in consequence of the activity of our enjoyment. Our senses were not tired out, but they required the rest which renews their sensitiveness, and restores the buoyancy necessary to active service. Bellino was the first to break our silence. "'Dearest,' she said, "'are you satisfied now? Have you found me truly loving?' "'Truly loving? Ah, traitress that you are! Do you, then, confess that I was not mistaken when I guessed that you were a charming woman? And if you truly loved me, tell me how you could contrive to defer your happiness and mine so long. But is it quite certain that I did not make a mistake?' I am yours all over. See for yourself. Oh, what delightful survey! What charming beauties! What an ocean of enjoyment! But I could not find any trace of the protuberance which had so much terrified and disgusted me. What has become, I said, of that dreadful monstrosity? Listen to me, she replied, and I will tell you everything. My name is Therese. My father, a poor clerk in the Institute of Bologna, had let an apartment in his house to the celebrated Salimberi, a castrato, and a delightful musician. He was young and handsome. He became attached to me, and I felt flattered by his affection, and by the praise he lavished upon me. I was only twelve years of age. He proposed to teach me music, and finding that I had a fine voice, he cultivated it carefully, and in less than a year I could accompany myself on the harpsichord. His reward was that which his love for me induced him to ask, and I granted the reward without feeling any humiliation, for I worshipped him. 
Of course, men like yourself are much above men of his species, but Salimberi was an exception. His beauty, his manners, his talent, and the rare qualities of his soul made him superior in my eyes to all the men I had seen until then. He was modest and reserved, rich and generous, and I doubt whether he could have found a woman able to resist him, yet I never heard him boast of having seduced any. The mutilation practiced upon his body had made him a monster, but he was an angel by his rare qualities and endowments. Salimberi was at that time educating a boy of the same age as myself, who was in Rimini with a music teacher. The father of the boy, who was poor and had a large family, seeing himself near death, had thought of having his unfortunate son maimed, so that he should become the support of his brothers with his voice. The name of the boy was Bellino. The good woman whom you have just seen in Ancona was his mother, and everybody believes that she is mine. I had belonged to Salimberi for about a year, when he announced to me one day, weeping bitterly, that he was compelled to leave me to go to Rome, but he promised to see me again. The news threw me into despair. He had arranged everything for the continuation of my musical education, but, as he was preparing himself for his departure, my father died very suddenly, after a short illness, and I was left an orphan. Salimberi had not courage enough to resist my tears and my entreaties. He made up his mind to take me to Rimini, and to place me in the same house where his young protégé was educated. We reached Rimini, and put up in an inn. After a short rest, Salimberi left me to call upon the teacher of music, and to make all necessary arrangements respecting me with him. But he soon returned, looking sad and unhappy. Bellino had died the day before. As he was thinking of the grief which the loss of the young man would cause his mother, he was struck with the idea of bringing me back to Bologna under the name of Bellino, where he could arrange for my board with the mother of the deceased Bellino, who, being very poor, would find it to her advantage to keep the secret. "'I will give her,' he said, "'everything necessary for the completion of your musical education, and in four years I will take you to Dresden.' He was in the service of the Elector of Saxony, King of Poland, not as a girl, but as a castrato. There we will live together without giving anyone cause for scandal, and you will remain with me and minister to my happiness until I die. All we have to do is represent you as Bellino, and it is very easy, as nobody knows you in Bologna. Bellino's mother will alone know the secret. Her other children have seen their brother only when he was very young, and can have no suspicion. But if you love me, you must renounce your sex, lose even the remembrance of it, and leave immediately for Bologna, dressed as a boy, and under the name of Bellino. You must be very careful, lest anyone should find out that you are a girl. You must sleep alone, dress yourself in private, and, when your bosom is formed, as it will be in a year or two, it will only be thought a deformity not uncommon amongst castrati. Besides, before leaving you, I will give you a small instrument— and teach how to fix it in such a manner that, if you had at any time to submit to an examination, you would easily be mistaken for a man. If you accept my plan, I feel certain that we can live together in Dresden, without losing the good graces of the Queen, who is very religious. Tell me now whether you will accept my proposal. He could not entertain any doubt of my consent, for I adored him. As soon as he had made a boy of me, we left Rimini for Bologna where we arrived late in the evening. A little gold made everything right with Bellino's mother. I gave her the name of mother, and she kissed me, calling me her dear son. 
Salimberi left us and returned a short time afterwards with the instrument which would complete my transformation. He taught me, in the presence of my new mother, how to fix it with some tragacanth gum, and I found myself exactly like my friend. I would have laughed at it, had not my heart been deeply grieved at the departure of my beloved Salimberi, for he bade me farewell as soon as the curious operation was completed. People laugh at forebodings. I do not believe in them myself, but the foreboding of evil, which almost broke my heart as he gave me his farewell kiss, did not deceive me. I felt the cold shivering of death run through me. I felt I was looking at him for the last time, and I fainted away. Alas, my fears proved only too prophetic. Salimbedi died a year ago in the Tyrol, in the prime of life, with the calmness of a true philosopher. His death compelled me to earn my living with the assistance of my musical talent. My mother advised me to continue to give myself out as a castrato, in the hope of being able to take me to Rome. I agreed to do so, for I did not feel sufficient energy to decide upon any other plan. In the meantime, she accepted an offer for the Ancona Theatre, and Petronio took the part of first female dancer. In this way, we played the comedy of The World Turned Upside Down. After Salimberi, you are the only man I have known. And, if you like, you can restore me to my original state, and make me give up the name of Bellino, which I hate since the death of my protector, and which begins to inconvenience me. I have only appeared at two theatres, and each time I have been compelled to submit to this scandalous, degrading examination, because everywhere I am thought to have too much the appearance of a girl. And I am admitted only after the shameful test has brought conviction. Until now, fortunately, I have had to deal only with old priests, who, in their good faith, have been satisfied with a very slight examination, and have made a favourable report to the bishop. But I might fall into the hands of some young abbé, and the test would then become a more severe one. Besides, I find myself exposed to the daily persecution of two sorts of beings, those who, like you, cannot and will not believe me to be a man, and those who, for the satisfaction of their disgusting propensities, are delighted at my being so, or find it advantageous to suppose me so. The last particularly annoy me. Their tastes are so infamous, their habits so low, that I fear I shall murder one of them some day, when I can no longer control the rage in which their obscene language throws me. Out of pity, my beloved angel, be generous, and if you love me, oh, free me from this state of shame and degradation. Take me with you. I do not ask to become your wife. That would be too much happiness. I will only be your friend, your mistress, as I would have been Salimberi's. My heart is pure and innocent. I feel that I can remain faithful to my lover throughout my whole life. Do not abandon me. The love I have for you is sincere. My affection for Salimberi was innocent. It was born of my inexperience and of my gratitude. And it is only with you that I have felt myself truly a woman. Her emotion an inexpressible charm which seemed to flow from her lips and to enforce conviction, made me shed tears of love and sympathy. I blended my tears with those falling from her beautiful eyes, and, deeply moved, I promised not to abandon her, and to make her the sharer of my fate. Interested in the history, as singular as extraordinary, that she had just narrated, and having seen nothing in it that did not bear the stamp of truth, I felt really disposed to make her happy, but I could not believe that I had inspired her with a very deep passion during my short stay in Ancona, many circumstances of which might, on the contrary, have had an opposite effect upon her heart. 
"'If you loved me truly,' I said, "'how could you let me sleep with your sisters, out of spite at your resistance?' "'Alas, dearest, think of our great poverty, and how difficult it was for me to discover myself. I loved you. But was it not natural that I should suppose your inclination for me only a passing caprice? When I saw you go so easily from Cecilia to Marinetta, I thought that you would treat me in the same manner as soon as your desires were satisfied. I was likewise confirmed in my opinion of your want of constancy, and of the little importance you attached to the delicacy of the sentiments of love.' when I witnessed what you did on board the Turkish vessel without being hindered by my presence. Had you loved me, I thought my being present would have made you uncomfortable. I feared to be soon despised, and God knows how much I suffered. You have insulted me, darling, in many different ways, but my heart pleaded in your favour, because I knew you were excited, angry, and thirsting for revenge. Did you not threaten me this very day in your carriage? I confess you greatly frightened me, but do not fancy that I gave myself to you out of fear. No, I had made up my mind to be yours from the moment you sent me word by Cecilia that you would take me to Rimini, and your control over your own feelings during a part of our journey confirmed me in my resolution, for I thought I could trust myself to your honour, to your delicacy. Throw up, I said, the engagement you have in Rimini. Let us proceed on our journey, and, after remaining a couple of days in Bologna, you will go with me to Venice." Dressed as a woman, and with another name, I would challenge the manager here to find you out. I accept. Your will shall always be my law. I am my own mistress, and I give myself to you without any reserve or restriction. My heart belongs to you, and I trust to keep yours. Man has in himself a moral force of action, which always makes him overstep the line on which he is standing. I had obtained everything. I want it more. Show me, I said, how you were when I mistook you for a man. She got out of bed, opened her trunk, took out the instrument, and fixed it with the gun. I was compelled to admire the ingenuity of the contrivance. My curiosity was satisfied, and I passed a most delightful night in her arms. When I woke up in the morning, I admired her lovely face while she was sleeping. All I knew of her came back to my mind, the words which had been spoken by her bewitching mouth, her rare talent, her candor, her feelings so full of delicacy, and her misfortunes, the heaviest of which must have been the false character she had been compelled to assume, and which exposed her to humiliation and shame. Everything strengthened my resolution to make her the companion of my destiny, whatever it might be, or to follow her fate, for our positions were very nearly the same. And wishing truly to attach myself seriously to that interesting being, I determined to give to our union the sanction of religion and of law, and to take her legally for my wife. Such a step, as I then thought, could but strengthen our love, increase our mutual esteem, and ensure the approbation of society, which could not accept our union unless it was sanctioned in the usual manner. The talents of Thérèse precluded the fear of our being ever in want of the necessaries of life, and, although I did not know in what way my own talents might be made available, I had faith in myself. Our love might have been lessened, she would have enjoyed too great advantages over me, and my self-dignity would have too deeply suffered, if I had allowed myself to be supported by her earnings only. It might, after a time, have altered the nature of our feelings my wife, no longer thinking herself under any obligation to me, might have fancied herself the protecting instead of the protected party, 
and I felt that my love would soon have turned into utter contempt if it had been my misfortune to find her harboring such thoughts. Although I trusted it would not be so, I wanted, before taking the important step of marriage, to probe her heart, and I resolved to try an experiment which would at once enable me to judge the real feelings of her inmost soul. As soon as she was awake, I spoke to her thus. "'Dearest Thérèse, all you have told me leaves me no doubt of your love for me, and the consciousness you feel of being the mistress of my heart enhances my love for you to such a degree that I am ready to do everything to convince you that you were not mistaken in thinking that you had entirely conquered me. I wish to prove to you that I am worthy of the noble confidence you have reposed in me by trusting you with equal sincerity.' Our hearts must be on a footing of perfect equality. I know you, my dearest Thérèse, but you do not know me yet. I can read in your eyes that you do not mind it, and it proves our great love, but that feeling places me too much below you, and I do not wish you to have so great an advantage over me. I feel certain that my confidence is not necessary to your love, that you only care to be mine, that your only wish is to possess my heart, and I admire you, my Thérèse. "'but I should feel humiliated if I found myself either too much above or too much below you. "'You have entrusted your secrets to me. Now listen to mine. "'But before I begin, promise me that when you know everything that concerns me, "'you will tell me candidly if any change has taken place either in your feelings or in your hopes.' "'I promise it faithfully. "'I promise not to conceal anything from you, "'but be upright enough not to tell me anything that is not perfectly true.' for I warn you that it would be useless. If you tried any artifice in order to find me less worthy of you than I am in reality, you would only succeed in lowering yourself in my estimation. I should be very sorry to see you guilty of any cunning towards me. Have no more suspicion of me than I have of you. Tell me the whole truth. Here it is. You suppose me wealthy, and I am not so. As soon as what there is now in my purse is spent, I shall have nothing left. You may fancy that I was born a patrician, but my social condition is really inferior to your own. I have no lucrative talent, no profession, nothing to give me the assurance that I am able to earn my living. I have neither relatives nor friends, nor claims upon anyone, and I have no serious plan or purpose before me. All I possess is youth, health, courage, some intelligence, honour, honesty, and some tincture of letters." My greatest treasure consists in being my own master, perfectly independent, and not afraid of misfortune. With all that, I am naturally inclined to extravagance. Lovely Thérèse, you have my portrait. What is your answer? In the first place, dearest, let me assure you that I believe every word you have just uttered, as I would believe in the gospel. In the second, Allow me to tell you that several times in Ancona I have judged you such as you have just described yourself, but far from being displeased at such a knowledge of your nature, I was only afraid of some illusion on my part, for I could hope to win you if you were what I thought you to be. In one word, dear one, if it is true that you are poor and a very bad hand at economy, allow me to tell you that I feel delighted, because if you love me, you will not refuse a present from me or despise me for offering it. The present consists of myself, such as I am, and with all my faculties. I give myself to you without any condition, with no restriction. I am yours. I will take care of you. For the future, think only of your love for me, 
but love me exclusively. From this moment, I am no longer Bellino. Let us go to Venice, where my talent will keep us both comfortably. If you wish to go anywhere else, let us go where you please. I must go to Constantinople. Then let us proceed to Constantinople. If you are afraid to lose me through want of constancy, marry me, and your right over me will be strengthened by law. I should not love you better than I do now, but I should be happy to be your wife. It is my intention to marry you, and I am delighted that we agree in that respect. The day after tomorrow, in Bologna, you shall be made my legal wife before the altar of God. I swear it to you here, in the presence of love. I want you to be mine. I want to be yours. I want us to be united by the most holy ties. I am the happiest of women. We have nothing to do in Rimini. Suppose we do not get up. We can have our dinner in bed, and go away tomorrow well rested after our fatigues. We left Rimini the next day, and stayed for breakfast at Pizarro. As we were getting into the carriage to leave that place, an officer, accompanied by two soldiers, presented himself, inquired for our names, and demanded our passports. Bellino had one and gave it, but I looked in vain for mine. I could not find it. The officer, a corporal, orders the postillion to wait and goes to make his report. Half an hour afterwards, he returns, gives Bellino his passport, saying that he can continue his journey, but tells me that his orders are to escort me to the commanding officer, and I follow him. "'What have you done with your passport?' inquires that officer. "'I have lost it.' "'A passport is not so easily lost.' "'Well, I have lost mine. You cannot proceed any further.' "'I come from Rome, and I am going to Constantinople, bearing a letter from Cardinal Acquaviva. Here is the letter stamped with his seal. "'All I can do for you is send you to Monsignor de Gajes.' I found the famous general standing, surrounded by his staff. I told him all I had already explained to the officer, and begged him to let me continue my journey. "'The only favour I can grant you is to put you under arrest till you receive another passport from Rome, delivered under the same name as the one you have given here. To lose a passport is a misfortune which befalls only a thoughtless, giddy man, and the cardinal will for the future know better than to put his confidence in a giddy fellow like you.' With these words, he gave orders to take me to the guardhouse at St. Mary's Gate, outside the city, as soon as I should have written to the cardinal for a new passport. His orders were executed. I was brought back to the inn, where I wrote my letter, and I sent it by express to his eminence, entreating him to forward the document without loss of time, direct to the war office. Then I embraced Thérèse, who was weeping, and, telling her to go to Rimini and to wait there for my return, I made her take one hundred sequins. She wished to remain in Pesaro, but I would not hear of it. I had my trunk brought out, I saw Thérèse go away from the inn, and was taken to the place appointed by the general. It is undoubtedly under such circumstances that the most determined optimist finds himself at a loss, but an easy stoicism can blunt the too sharp edge of misfortune. My greatest sorrow was the heart-grief of Thérèse, who, seeing me torn from her arms at the very moment of our union, was suffocated by the tears which she tried to repress. She would not have left me if I had not made her understand that she could not remain in Bezaro, and if I had not promised to join her within ten days, never to be parted again. But fate had decided otherwise. 
When we reached the gate, the officer confined me immediately in the guardhouse, and I sat down on my trunk. The officer was a taciturn Spaniard, who did not even condescend to honor me with an answer when I told him that I had money and would like to have someone wait on me. I had to pass the night on a little straw and without food, in the midst of the Spanish soldiers. It was the second night of the sort that my destiny had condemned me to, immediately after two delightful nights. My good angel doubtless found some pleasure in bringing such conjunctions before my mind for the benefit of my instruction. At all events, teachings of that description have an infallible effect upon natures of a peculiar stamp. If you should wish to close the lips of a logician calling himself a philosopher, who dares to argue that in this life grief overbalances pleasure, ask him whether he would accept a life entirely without sorrow and happiness. Be certain that he will not answer you, or he will shuffle, because if he says no, he proves that he likes life such as it is, and if he likes it, he must find it agreeable, which is an utter impossibility, if life is painful. Should he, on the contrary, answer in the affirmative, he would declare himself a fool, for it would be as much as to say that he can conceive pleasure arising from indifference, which is absurd nonsense. Suffering is inherent in human nature, but we never suffer without entertaining the hope of recovery, or at least very seldom without such hope, and hope itself is a pleasure. If it happens sometimes that man suffers without any expectation of a cure, he necessarily finds pleasure in the complete certainty of the end of his life, for the worst, in all cases, must be either a sleep arising from extreme dejection, during which we have the consolation of happy dreams, or the loss of all sensitiveness. But when we are happy, our happiness is never disturbed by the thought that it will be followed by grief. Therefore, pleasure, during its active period, is always complete, without alloy. Grief is always soothed by hope. I suppose you, dear reader, at the age of twenty, and devoting yourself to the task of making a man of yourself by furnishing your mind with all the knowledge necessary to render you a useful being through the activity of your brain. Someone comes in and tells you, I bring you thirty years of existence. It is the immutable decree of fate. Fifteen consecutive years must be happy, and fifteen years unhappy. You are at liberty to choose the half by which you wish to begin. Confess it candidly, dear reader, you will not require much more consideration to decide, and you will certainly begin by the unhappy series of years, because you will feel that the expectation of fifteen delightful years cannot fail to brace you up with the courage necessary to bear the unfortunate years you have to go through. And we can even surmise, with every probability of being right, that the certainty of future happiness will soothe to a considerable extent the misery of the first period. You have already guessed, I have no doubt, the purpose of this lengthy argument. The sagacious man, believe me, can never be utterly miserable, and I most willingly agree with my friend Horace, who says that, on the contrary, such a man is always happy. Nisi cum pituita molesta est. But pray, where is the man who is always suffering from a room? The fact is that the fearful night I passed in the guardhouse of St. Mary resulted for me in a slight loss and in a great gain. The small loss was to be away from my dear Thérèse, but, being certain of seeing her within ten days, the misfortune was not very great. As to the gain, it was an experience the true school for a man. I gained a complete system against thoughtlessness, a system of foresight. You may safely bet a hundred to one that a young man who has once lost his purse or his passport will not lose either a second time. 
each of those misfortunes has befallen me once only, and I might have been very often the victim of them if experience had not taught me how much they were to be dreaded. A thoughtless fellow is a man who has not yet found the word dread in the dictionary of his life. The officer who relieved my cross-grained Castilian on the following day seemed of a different nature altogether. His prepossessing countenance pleased me much. He was a Frenchman, and I must say that I have always liked the French and never the Spaniards. There is in the manners of the first something so engaging, so obliging, that you feel attracted towards them as towards a friend, whilst an air of unbecoming haughtiness gives to the second a dark, forbidding countenance, which certainly does not prepossess in their favour. Yet I have often been duped by Frenchmen, and never by Spaniards, a proof that we ought to mistrust our tastes. The new officer, approaching me very politely, said to me, "'To what chance, reverend sir, am I indebted for the honour of having you in my custody?' "'Ah, here was a way of speaking which restored to my lungs all their elasticity. I gave him all the particulars of my misfortune, and he found the mishap very amusing. But a man disposed to laugh at my disappointment could not be disagreeable to me, for it proved that the turn of his mind had more than one point of resemblance with mine.' He gave me at once a soldier to serve me, and I had very quickly a bed, a table, and a few chairs. He was kind enough to have my bed placed in his own room, and I felt very grateful to him for that delicate attention. He gave me an invitation to share his dinner, and proposed a game of piquet afterwards, but from the very beginning he saw that I was no match for him. He told me so, and he warned me that the officer who would relieve him the next day was a better player even than he was himself. I lost three or four ducats. He advised me to abstain from playing on the following day, and I followed his advice. He told me also that he would have company to supper, and that there would be a game of faro, but that the banker being a Greek and a crafty player, I ought not to play. I thought his advice very considerate, particularly when I saw that all the punters lost, and that the Greek, very calm in the midst of the insulting treatment of those he had duped, was pocketing his money, after handing a share to the officer who had taken an interest in the bank. The name of the banker was Don Pepe il Cadetto, and by his accent I knew he was a Neapolitan. I communicated my discovery to the officer, asking him why he had told me the man was a Greek. He explained to me the meaning of the word Greek applied to a gambler, and the lesson which followed his explanation proved very useful to me in after years. During the five following days my life was uniform and rather dull. But on the sixth day the same French officer was on guard, and I was very glad to see him. He told me, with a hearty laugh, that he was delighted to find me still in the guardhouse, and I accepted the compliment for what it was worth. In the evening we had the same bank at Faro, with the same result as the first time, except a violent blow from the stick of one of the punters upon the back of the banker, of which the Greek stoically feigned to take no notice. I saw the same man again nine years afterwards in Vienna, captain in the service of Maria Teresa. He then called himself Da Flisso. Ten years later I found him a colonel, and some time after worth a million. But the last time I saw him, some thirteen or fourteen years ago, he was a galley slave. He was handsome, but, rather a singular thing, in spite of his beauty he had a gallows look. I have seen others with the same stamp, Cagliostro, for instance, and another who has not yet been sent to the galleys, but who cannot fail to pay them a visit. Should the reader feel any curiosity about it, I can whisper the name in his ear. Towards the ninth or tenth day, everyone in the army knew and liked me, and I was expecting the passport, which could not be delayed much longer. 
I was almost free, and I would often walk about even out of sight of the sentinel. They were quite right not to fear my running away, and I should have been wrong if I had thought of escaping, but the most singular adventure of my life happened to me then, and most unexpectedly. It was about six in the morning. I was taking a walk within one hundred yards of the sentinel, when an officer arrived and alighted from his horse, threw the bridle on the neck of his steed, and walked off. Admiring the docility of the horse, standing there like a faithful servant to whom his master has given orders to wait for him, I got up to him, and without any purpose, I get hold of the bridle, put my foot in the stirrup, and find myself in the saddle. I was on horseback for the first time in my life. I do not know whether I touch the horse with my cane or with my heels, but suddenly the animal starts at a full speed. My right foot having slipped out of the stirrup, I press against the horse with my heels, and, feeling the pressure, it gallops faster and faster, for I did not know how to check it. At the last advanced post, the sentinels call out to me to stop, but I cannot obey the order, and the horse carrying me away faster than ever, I hear the whizzing of a few musket balls, the natural consequence of my involuntary disobedience. At last, when I reach the first advanced picket of the Austrians, the horse is stopped, and I get off his back, thanking God. An officer of the Hussars asks where I am running so fast, and my tongue, quicker than my thought, answers without any privity on my part, that I can render no account but to Prince Lopkowitz, commander-in-chief of the army, whose headquarters were at Rimini. Hearing my answer, the officer gave orders for two Hussars to get on horseback. A fresh one is given me, and I am taken at full gallop to Rimini, where the officer on guard has me escorted at once to the prince. I find his highness alone, and I tell him candidly what has just happened to me. My story makes him laugh, although he observes that it is hardly credible. I ought, he says, to put you under arrest, but I am willing to save you that unpleasantness. With that, he called one of his officers and ordered him to escort me through the Cesena gate. Then you can go wherever you please, he added, turning round to me, but take care not to again enter the lines of my army without a passport, or you might fare badly. I asked him to let me have the horse again, but he answered that the animal did not belong to me. I forgot to ask him to send me back to the place I had come from, and I regretted it, but after all, perhaps I did for the best. The officer who accompanied me asked me, as we were passing a coffee-house, whether I would like to take some chocolate, and we went in. At that moment I saw Petronio going by, and availing myself of a moment when the officer was talking to someone, I told him not to appear to be acquainted with me, but to tell me where he lived. When we had taken our chocolate, the officer paid, and we went out. Along the road we kept up the conversation. He told me his name, I gave him mine, and I explained how I found myself in Rimini. He asked me whether I had not remained some time in Ancona. I answered in the affirmative, and he smiled and said I could get a passport in Bologna, return to Rimini and to Pizarro without any fear, and recover my trunk by paying the officer for the horse he had lost. We reached the gate. He wished me a pleasant journey, and we parted company. I found myself free with gold and jewels, but without my trunk. Therese was in Rimini, and I could not enter that city. I made up my mind to go to Bologna as quickly as possible in order to get a passport, and to return to Pesaro, where I should find my passport from Rome, for I could not make up my mind to lose my trunk, and I did not want to be separated from Therese until the end of her engagement with the manager of the Rimini Theatre. It was raining. I had silk stockings on, and I longed for a carriage. I took shelter under the portal of a church, 
and turned my fine overcoat inside out so as not to look like an abbé. At that moment, a peasant happened to come along, and I asked him if a carriage could be had to drive me to Chisena. "'I have one, sir,' he said. "'But I live half a league from here. "'Go and get it. I will wait for you here.' While I was waiting for the return of the peasant with his vehicle, some forty mules laden with provisions came along the road towards Rimini. It was still raining fast, and the mules passing close by me, I placed my hand mechanically upon the neck of one of them, and, following the slow pace of the animals, I re-entered Rimini without the slightest notice being taken of me, even by the drivers of the mules. I gave some money to the first street urchin I met, and he took me to Therese's house. With my hair fastened under a nightcap, my hat pulled down over my face, and my fine cane concealed under my coat, I did not look a very elegant figure. I inquired for Bellino's mother, and the mistress of the house took me to a room where I found all the family— and Therese in a woman's dress. I had reckoned upon surprising them, but Petronio had told them of our meeting, and they were expecting me. I gave a full account of my adventures, but Therese, frightened at the danger that threatened me, and in spite of her love, told me that it was absolutely necessary for me to go to Bologna, as I had been advised by Monsignor Weiss, the officer. "'I know him,' she said, "'and he is a worthy man, but he comes here every evening, and you must conceal yourself.' It was only eight o'clock in the morning. We had the whole day before us, and everyone promised to be discreet. I allayed Therese's anxiety by telling her that I could easily contrive to leave the city without being observed. Therese took me to her own room, where she told me that she had met the manager of the theatre on her arrival in Rimini, and that he had taken her at once to the apartments engaged for the family. She had informed him that she was a woman, and that she had made up her mind not to appear as a castrato any more. He had expressed himself delighted at such news, because women could appear on the stage at Rimini, which was not under the same legate as Ancona. She added that her engagement would be at an end by the first of May, and that she would meet me wherever it would be agreeable to me to wait for her. "'As soon as I can get a passport,' I said, "'there is nothing to hinder me from remaining near you until the end of your engagement. But, as Monsignor Weiss calls upon you, tell me whether you have informed him of my having spent a few days in Ancona.' I did, and I even told him that you had been arrested because you had lost your passport. I understood why the officer had smiled as he was talking with me. After my conversation with Therese, I received the compliments of the mother and of the young sisters, who appeared to me less cheerful and less free than they had been in Ancona. They felt that Bellino, transformed into Therese, was too formidable a rival. I listened patiently to all the complaints of the mother, who maintained that, in giving up the character of Castrato, Thérèse had bidden adieu to fortune, because she might have earned a thousand sequins a year in Rome. "'In Rome, my good woman,' I said, "'the false Bellino would have been found out, and Thérèse would have been consigned to a miserable convent, for which she was never made.' Notwithstanding the danger of my position, I spent the whole of the day alone with my beloved mistress— and it seemed that every moment gave her fresh beauties, and increased my love. At eight o'clock in the evening, hearing someone coming in, she left me, and I remained in the dark, but in such a position that I could see everything and hear every word. The Baron Weiss came in, and Therese gave him her hand with the grace of a pretty woman and the dignity of a princess. The first thing he told her was the news about me. She appeared to be pleased, and listened with well-feigned indifference, when he said that he had advised me to return with a passport. 
He spent an hour with her, and I was thoroughly well pleased with her manners and behavior, which had been such as to leave me no room for the slightest feeling of jealousy. Marina lighted him out, and Therese returned to me. We had a joyous supper together, and, as we were getting ready to go to bed, Petronio came to inform me that ten muleteers would start for Cesena two hours before daybreak, and that he was sure I could leave the city with them if I would go and meet them a quarter of an hour before their departure, and treat them to something to drink. I was of the same opinion, and made up my mind to make the attempt. I asked Petronio to sit up and to wake me in good time. It proved an unnecessary precaution, for I was ready before the time, and left Therese satisfied with my love, without any doubt of my constancy, but rather anxious as to my success in attempting to leave Rimini. She had sixty sequins which she wanted to force back upon me, but I asked her what opinion she would have of me if I accepted them, and we said no more about it. I went to the stable, and having treated one of the muleteers to some drink, I told him that I would willingly ride one of his mules as far as Sarignan. "'You are welcome to the ride,' said the good fellow, "'but I would advise you not to get on the mule till we are outside the city, and to pass through the gate on foot, as if you were one of the drivers.' It was exactly what I wanted. Petronio accompanied me as far as the gate, where I gave him a substantial proof of my gratitude. I got out of the city without the slightest difficulty, and left the muleteers at Sarignan, whence I posted to Bologna.' I found out that I could not obtain a passport, for the simple reason that the authorities of the city persisted that it was not necessary. But I knew better, and it was not for me to tell them why. I resolved to write to the French officer who had treated me so well at the guardhouse. I begged him to inquire at the war office whether my passport had arrived from Rome, and, if so, to forward it to me. I also asked him to find out the owner of the horse who had run away with me, offering to pay for it. I made up my mind to wait for Therese in Bologna and I informed her of my decision, entreating her to write very often. The reader will soon know the new resolution I took on the very same day. End of chapter 12